Who are you? Whether you're 18 or 80, you've probably devoted a lot of time trying to understand the answer to this question. I know I have. And the answer is always evolving as our perception of the world around us and the world within us develops and as we change and grow. That's why for many people, memory disorders are so frightening. My name is Father Mesro Bash, and this is the podcast of St. John Armenian Church in San Francisco. When the story that seems to define us is interrupted, corrupted, or lost, it can feel like we're losing ourselves. Of course, this can be nearly as traumatic for the loved ones who have to care for grandparents, parents, uncles, aunts, close friends, spouses that are suffering from memory loss. As a pastor, I've seen the profound impact that it can have on families. It can be heartbreaking. And as a person, I harbor the same concerns that I'm sure you do. What would my life be like if I had dementia? Would I be able to bear the burden of caring for a loved one with dementia? Because of these reasons, I've felt the need to try and be proactive about educating my parish and myself about the realities of dementia. A few years ago, we hosted a two-part discussion group with the Alzheimer's Association. And earlier this year, we welcomed Vic Mazmania, board member of Alzheimer's Care Armenia, an organization trying to raise awareness about dementia-related issues in Armenia today. He also works with Silverado, a memory care facility and resources company based in Southern California and is active at Saddleback Church. But you'll hear more about him in a second. One thing that I find difficult to overcome when dealing with dementia-related issues is the apprehension that people have to discuss its reality. The presentations that I've organized at my parish have been less attended than other events that we organize, despite memory loss being a widespread problem. According to the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, at a rate that's increased by 123% since the year 2000. Furthermore, dementia, unlike other conditions, seems to cut very deeply at the emotional and spiritual core of people's lives. It's for this reason, in the hopes that we could reach more people, that after his presentation, I asked Vic to sit down with me and discuss his experience and insights after years of not only being a dementia caregiver for his mother, but also about his mind, heart, and soul ministry at Silverado. Just a note about this episode. For the most part, we're using the words Alzheimer's and dementia interchangeably to describe the illness that results in memory loss. We're going to jump into our discussion at a point where I'm asking Vic about how he got involved in speaking to groups about dementia in a Christian context. He'll speak for a few minutes about his background, but I think it's important to hear about the experience that he had with his mother when she began to suffer from dementia. So it wasn't, this was revelation for you then, um, after your oh, experience yeah. with your mother, that oh, yeah. oh, this is ministry opportunity for, did somebody reach out to you and say, hey, this is like. Oh, but you haven't heard my story. Moment. No, I haven't heard the story. 
my story is amazing. I think it's just uh, everybody that uh, I do it as part of my talk when I do my talks because mm -hmm. it really is to me uh, embodies what pastors and, and people are saying about walking with faith, not mm -hmm. by sight. Mm -hmm. And it really translates to real life to me. And that's what it is. And that's part of my uh, slides I use. I, I lose a lot of scriptures with my slides. But um, uh, as I said, God had a plan for me. So when I was not, I was 55, probably. 54, right around there, 53, when I started uh, getting involved with mom's situation, there was an issue going on. So up to that point, no, I was not what I would consider a real big Christian or walker mm -hmm. or nothing. Anyways, um, so when I started with her and then um, the uh, uh, God wanted my attention, I always say God wanted my attention. So the, I said, the only way you can get my attention is to touch my family or touch my finances. Either way, that'll get my attention. Mm -hmm. So he did that with my uh, family. So when my, I told you when my dad was sick, all that was going on. And then my mom was his caregiver, and then she could be his caregiver. And I have one older sister. So I asked her to move in with my mom and dad. They lived up the street from me. I moved in with them to help take care of him daily. So her and my brother-in-law moved in with them, take care of him. Six and I was working in the mortgage industry at the time, and so then six months after they, my sister moved in with them, my brother-in-law uh, passed out on the side of the road. He was sixty years old, ex-football player, very healthy, never sick, uh, and he had leukemia, mm -hmm. the worst kind, the the real fast-growing kind. So they told me I had to go into massive chemo that night if he was going to live more than thirty days. So he went into massive chemo, uh, destroyed his body, everything. And then he went into City of Hope, got a bone marrow transplant, trying to save his life. And it was a mess. And so he was in the house with chemo and going through all this. My father was in, my father was in the house going through his chemo. And my mom was walking, I always say, my mom was walking around saying, who are these people? You know, <laughs> Jeez, I, I nicknamed sounds... the house the hospital. Well, that's oh, just the beginning. Gosh. So, so I, and stress so, sounds intolerable. Oh, wait. And so then I... So I'm doing all that and I'm trying to take care of dad and my sister couldn't take care of dad or mom anymore because she's not going to take care of my husband. So she's doing that. I got to take care of mom and dad now. I'm trying to work and I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm at the ER two times a week, three times a week. The EMTs are at the house two times a week for somebody. Then my wife in the middle of all this, she had thyroid issues for years, uh, found out she had thyroid cancer and then she had to have her thyroid removed and go through radiation. So that's when I went, okay, God, what do you want from me? It, how many more people can you touch that I love that quickly with serious health issues? Jobian, practically. Oh, my God. And so God was faithful. I was praying the whole time that I, I was worried I was going to get sick because I had my own issues stress would bring on. I said, I can't get sick. I, these people need me. I have to be with somebody. And so he, I didn't get a sniff or a cold during that time period. My dad died suddenly uh, from pneumonia from the chemo, making him really weak. And just real fast, it happened one night at the hospital and then the next day uh my mom we found out she couldn't put toothpaste on a toothbrush she didn't know how to do that anymore and we and he wasn't telling us which is normal for parents they don't tell the kids because they're embarrassed so and then 30 days after that the economy crashed back then this is 2007 and i my mortgage closed their doors they closed the division down so i was out of work mm -hmm. 30 days afterwards so I was thinking, okay, well, I'm trying to find work or do a job. I'll take care of my mom. I can do that. It's easy. That's what I thought back then because um, I'm pretty even-tempered and I don't get upset easily. So I tried to take care of her and it was horrible. 
just horrible. And there was no money to do, buy help with her. Just Social Security, there's Social Security. Right. So it was horrible. And I was trying to figure out what to do. I moved her in with me just out of necessity because there was no money to keep paying for the house payment and everything I was doing up there. I was trying to balance both those. Both my sons were in college at the time. One was graduating, one just entered. And uh, I'm a high school graduate, so is my wife. And we and our goal was they were going to go through, uh, get a degree. So we told them both, you go get a degree. And then when I, this happened to me all this, and I lost my job, my, both my boys wanted to come home and not, they said, you can't afford this. We're coming home. And I said, no, you're staying. You're getting a degree. That's our goal. So I don't care what happens. So they stayed, got their degrees. And, um, you know, I kept paying all the stuff out, money constantly. So God didn't let me work for two and a half years. Hmm. I didn't work for two and a half years. Wow. Not because of choice. And so I was going crazy, you know, uh, funneling money out for two and a half years and everything. And, you know, and I was. Thank God you were somewhat financially sound. That, oh, yeah. I just li was liquidating. I was just kept yeah. liquidating constantly. I was going crazy. Um, so finally, I was at the end of my rope after two and a half years, you know, just no funds, no nothing. And I was, in the meantime, in that two and a half years, I was learning about this disease. I went, went and researched it and went to all the seminars, went, did everything to immerse myself in this disease so I could help mom at home. So I was doing all that. So I learned a bunch of stuff. And then I started doing support groups. Uh, lead, I, oh, I went through a counseling course at Saddleback. They have a counseling course if you want to become a counselor. And that's kind of where I'm, I, I like that. So mm -hmm. I, I went into that 39 week course. I graduated and then I became a lay counselor at church because I had time. Mm -hmm. And I started lay counseling at church for two years. And then I went from that to running support groups because they had nobody to run the support groups for Alzheimer's. So I was doing I that. Within the church. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I started doing all that. And I um, and I was dying. So I, I, I told the audience, I told the audience this stuff. I said, you know. And then I said, the kicker for me was I, I my wife was working for a girlfriend who's a doctor. It was really good. Um, but they, you know, health insurance was lousy at the doctor's offices. So she was, we were paying ash. I don't know, 1800 a month, 2000 a month for her and I. It was crazy. So I said, I'm going to go to get a cut job at a big company. I said, they got I can get a health plan. They get cheap health plan. It'll save us money at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I went and applied for a job at Target. I get a rejection letter from Target. So when I get a rejection letter from Target, I told the audience, okay, 12-year-olds get hired by Target. <laughs> and you don't want to hire me to the cashier. So I said, God, I told God, what do you want? I mean, come on. Now, I mean, you're, I, now you're... We were at Job, now we're at Jonah. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I've done everything I could think of. God slammed every door and making me, make, make, me making money, every door. Mm -hmm. And that was the final straw mm -hmm. that I kept working on my back. And I just said, this is, what do I say? Just start robbing banks? This is it. So uh, after that is when I was talking to two Christian friends of mine that had a public relations firm that I used for years in the past. And, and they went to my church and I was talking to them and I said, you know, this is, there's got to be something that God wants for me. I said, because um, I've, I've gone to school, like college for this disease. Now I have all this information and I'm, my mom's experience and all these other people's experience I've been talking to for all these years and the training from the um, uh, counseling. I said, so how can I use this to make money? Yet I still want to help these people because these people are, are, uh, Dying. Mm -hmm. They're 64 percent mm -hmm. of caregivers. This is these were actual facts. Die or hospitalize. I didn't tell them. I didn't say that. That's part of my. They die or hospitalize before their loved one because of stress. Because it's a number one highest stress level of any caregiver. Sure. Yeah. So these Somewhere people reminds me of uh, clergymen. 
clergymen have abnormal levels of stress and heart disease and all these things because they're in somewhat similar positions. But I think this is much worse. So it's just like, I, so I'm trying to help these people and I'm trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> this is so God. It's amazing. So um, uh, one of the people knows Lauren Shook, who's the CEO of this company I'm working for. Mm -hmm. And she goes, oh, I know Lauren Shook. Would you want to talk to him? And I said, I've heard of the company. I said, sure, I'll go talk to him. They said, well, we'll introduce you. Maybe he could help you. I said, yeah, maybe he could, maybe he could help me. So he introduced me to him. I went down to meet him in his office. And they, they said, he goes to our church. And I said, okay, but we have 50,000 people going to our church. How do I know him? So we went, uh, I went to his office to meet him. And I had a 30-minute meeting set up for him. And he's an extremely busy guy. And he's super intelligent, smart guy. And so I'm, I'm talking to him. He said, okay, Vic, what can I do for you? I never met him for my life. So I started talking to him about the stuff that I've been going through and the things that have been happening at church that I saw and everything. And I started talking to him about this stuff. And he was, he, we always laugh. He takes a yellow legal pad. And he's making notes like this as I'm talking. So he got, when I got done, he was all excited. He got up. He said, Vic, he said, let's do this. What do you want to do? Let's do this. What, 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 can, I, what can I do? And I said, what? Do what? I don't know what we're talking about. I came here because I told Lauren, I said, I'm not a philanthropist. I've been doing this for two and a half years. I'm dying here. I said, I can't, I need to make money. I said, but I don't know what to do. So mm -hmm. that's why I came to talk to you to get some ideas. And so he looked at me for a few minutes. And he said, you know, come work for me. Problem solved. What do you want to do? You can do anything. So I told him I want to, I could do anything he wanted me to do to help him. I said, I really, um, have the ability to, because I've started my own businesses, all these things. I, so I can sweep the floors. I can do anything. So just tell me what you need to help in. But I want time to do this, what I'm talking about. And so he told me, well, I only want you to do that. That's all I want you to do. Wow. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He says, take two weeks, go back, put a plan together, come back and present it to the board. This fits into our plan of making the world better. So I went online and I took a business plan out. And I carved out all the financial part of it, and I named it the Mind, Heart, and Soul Ministry, and put the rest of the outreach of making it, and because I really believe that places of worship uh, want to help their congregation, want to help them all do all these things, but they don't know how to do it. They don't understand the disease. But if you could give them like a like a uh, ministry in a box, I call it. If you can give them a ministry in a box where they can, this is what it looks like. But the thing is. Where does where do you go where somebody says I'm going to give you a check to do mm -hmm, what you want to do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was my dream to do this. It was like wow. So that was God. And I told Lauren afterwards. I said, you know, this wasn't a coincidence. This was God. And he goes, yeah, I know, Vic. He said, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the what you're describing is a Christian ministry operating from operating from within a for-profit company, mm -hmm. which is. Pretty crazy. You don't see it. You don't see it. And the, the amazing thing I have to tell you, Father, I have to. There's so much God. There's so much God. This. Let me see. The amazing thing is, I thought, like I told everybody, when I first started doing this, I thought I was doing this for helping people with the disease. I really thought that I'm doing this to educate people so they know how to take care of Alzheimer's. I was wrong. That's not why I'm. That's not why this exists. That's not why I'm doing this. Everything, God had a whole different plan. And I realized the plan God had was, this was being done to bring people to Him. Mm. That's what it's about. Mm -hmm. It's um, because we do these surveys for all our seminars, and I, I didn't bring in the stuff with you. I have my own collateral, everything with what I do. 
So we do these surveys and people mark all the stuff on there and they critique the speakers and everything that talk and give us what talks they want to hear next, all these different things. But they put on here, that's how we, we know that 50% of our audiences don't come to church. Mm -hmm. They just come for this information. So we get all these people who don't believe or only believe since they were a kid, let's say, mm -hmm. and they come and they're like, oh my God. And they see a cool place like the church where they're at. Mm -hmm. They're like, wow, this is nice. Everybody's so nice to me here. And then they come back and I can't tell you, the churches love it. It's a great outreach for all of them. The tool, outreach tool. It brings people in the door mm -hmm. and it's so nice. And so, um, and then I see the people coming to me and telling me that, and tears and so many stories I could tell you that people coming to me saying, oh, my brother, my sister's coming for this talk, Vic. I said, okay. They've been coming to my support group or something. I said, but you don't understand. They won't, they won't step foot on church property. Mm -hmm. They hate church, mm -hmm. they're but they're coming today. And I said, okay. It, illness of any sort, right? A disease that impacts an individual and the people in their life, their family and their friends, it, especially when it's a serious one, it rocks their life and it's, and it's a, a real challenge to their mind, obviously to their body and also their soul. You named your ministry, uh, what was it? Mind, heart, and soul. Mind, heart, and soul. Mind, yeah. heart, and soul. So, apropos. Um, but it seems to me that Alzheimer's and dementia in particular, you know, they cut with a certain sharpness that's unlike any other form of, of illness. It is, yes. Um, because it, it really gets to the core of how people relate to one another, mm -hmm. right? How do you define a relationship mm -hmm. when one party perhaps isn't aware or participating in that relationship? Mm -hmm. It's really a challenge for the soul uh, as much as anything else and a test of a person's willingness to be loyal uh, and to do the right thing. Uh, when the person maybe sitting in front of you may not even know or appreciate what it is you're doing. Most of the time, yeah. yeah. How, you know, in this ministry that you have, which is born out of your personal experience and, and you having been subjected to it, you know, how, does, how, how does faith help drive a person to overcome? Or if you want to describe maybe perhaps better than I have how it affects people's lives and the challenges that they're going through, please feel free to do that as well. Well, the, uh, the people that are going through this, like I tell everybody, when you choose to care for someone with this disease, that's a choice. People don't, I didn't realize this till years ago. I was on a Christian radio station in, in uh, LA and the guy and the interviewer told me, why are you doing this? Like when I was thinking of my mom and that's what threw me over. What are you talking about? It's my mom. No, Vic, this is a choice you're making. And then when he explained it to me, it made sense. He said, you don't, you aren't obligated to do this. You choose, you chose to do this. I know many people that have walked away from the same obligation. And so he's right. And I re went through that and I said, you know, when you make this, this is a choice to do this. Uh, not everyone's a caregiver. Not everyone is capable of being caregiver, really. It's a tough job. And so when you're doing this, God's honoring you. God's bringing this in by honoring your commitment to doing this job. How many people have, I've seen husband and wife's divorce over this. The wife or husband says, I'm not doing this, and they're out. I've seen brother, uh, sisters and daughters and sons, I'm going to Europe, I'm not doing this. You know, I mean, so it's a choice. And right. when I tell people that, you should see the caregivers are like, what? And they're like smiling because they realize, yes, you are doing a great thing by just first of all, attempting mm -hmm. to do this. Mm -hmm. And number two, 
that while you're doing this, as you, if you want to uh, be someone in your faith, if you want to be able to uh, have a reason for being on this planet, let's say, you want to have a reason for your existence and why you're here and how you can help God like we all want to do. I said, you know, when I was in church before years ago, and many people feel the same way, how do I give back? How do I help God? I mean, I can't, I'm not a missionary. I'm not going to go to Africa. I'm not, that's not me. I'm not going to do that stuff. But how can I make a, I'm in the pews. How can I make my mark? You know, mm -hmm. well, this is a prime example when I explain to the caregivers, Caregiving is their ministry. That's their ministry. Okay. That one-on-one -on -one caregiving, it's huge. I mean, it's so big. It's unbelievable. When I explain it to them with the scriptures backing it, and I tell them that, you know, this ministry that you're doing, when you're caring for this your loved one, whatever that is, again, your choice to do that, that's your ministry. God's watching that. He's blessing you on that. Besides that, bigger than that is everybody around you is watching it too. And so all your neighbors and friends and everybody that sees you doing your ministry and you're smiling and you're doing your ministry and they're wondering, what do you have that I don't have? Mm -hmm. You're not at the bar drinking. You're not hitting the pills. You're not doing this to cope. You're at church. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's your backbone. That's where you're going. And so you're getting through this and you are modeling. So you're witnessing yes. your behavior. Yes. And you're affecting other people mm -hmm. who are now saying, I want what you have. I can't tell you how many people have told me that. I want what you have. You know, how do I get that? And so my point is that it's such an opportunity. It's so much you can do that you can that you can be a part of in this one ministry that's given to you, that's been part of your life. It's amazing. At this point, we've learned about Vic's experiences and his belief that caregivers have an awesome opportunity to reflect God's love, not only to our loved ones, but also the people that witness the care that we give. But as our conversation continued, we considered the impact that caregiving can have on people. I want to just warn our listeners that at this point the conversation gets pretty heavy and we discuss things like suicide and elder neglect. If these are sensitive topics for you, please be aware. I mean, I had, I have to tell you, Father, that th with this disease, there's a lot of suicide. Many people want to commit suicide that get this disease. Uh, the people suffering from the disease suffering or the caregivers? Both. Both. <laughs> but mainly the people for, the, uh, you've seen in the news, we've seen in the news, sometimes we see the caregiver, husband and wives, yeah, kill one suicide. and then kill themselves, whatever, you know. But the people who are, get the disease want to kill themselves when they get the pronouncement. You know, I mean, I have to confess, I, I, I harbor, I think, like many people do, a fear. Yeah. Right? I mean, I it's obviously all hold, hold very dearly um, the idea that what I've accumulated in my life through memory and experience and 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 learning and knowledge and wisdom and, and all of these things that make me who I am may one day be taken away from me. It seems to me like the worst outcome, right? I had that happen to me. Yeah. I've had several people come to me if they feel comfortable after a talk or something yeah. and say they want to commit suicide. Tell me. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait a minute, hold it. You haven't even got a, a diagnosis yet. You don't even know what's going on yet. And you already want to do this, you know. So I, God is with me because God gives me the words to say. I'm, the Holy Spirit gives me the ability to say things to these people and detract it. But I have one story. I'm driving around and God's bugging me to stop by at the church. And I always laugh because... I know when I'm sensing God's wanting me to do something. I explain it, but it's a feeling. It's a push. And I know I was driving around one day, and, and he said, stop by the church. Just I had left a phone, number, phone message for somebody working there. 
and I'm going home and, he, and, it, and it was really strong. And I kept saying, stop at the church and go see this person. And I kept saying, no, I'm going home. I'll call them. I'm, I always fight with God. So I'm fighting with them. No, I'm going to go home. No, stop at the church now. So I, it was strong. I pulled in the parking lot. I was mad. I got out of the car. Okay, you happy now? I'm going to the church. I'm going in. So I go in. And there's these two electronic doors that we have, and the, there's a separate building for the pastors there. And so, two-story building. So I go into the electronic doors where the receptionist is. I walk in, and this man's coming out. And this man, um, I met, he's probably 20 years older than myself. And I met him during the counseling training I told you about. He went and did the same training. That's where I met him. Real nice guy, retired executive. So he's coming out, and he's volunteering on the peace team's mission part of the church. He's been working on that side. And I don't see him. So he comes out and he goes, hey, Vic, what are you doing? And I said, oh, hi. And we're talking for the receptionist. And he says to me, you know, uh, what are you doing now? So I tell him what I was doing with the ministry and everything. And he goes, oh, that's really good. And on and on. I says, thanks. And then he motions to me like this, like to go outside. So I look at him and I said, okay. So I walk out to the outside, outside the doors. And there's a little fountain area. I walked out there. He walked out there. So he's telling me, he goes, you know, he says, I think I'm getting this disease. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. He says, I've been forgetting names and things that he thinks. And he goes, and I think I'm getting this disease. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He says, do you know what the church feels about suicide? He tells me. And I said, no, I really haven't asked him that particular question. He goes, well, I did. I asked this pastor, and this is what he said. And whatever he said, I don't remember. It, I don't think it's the church's stance, but whatever. Okay. So then I said, okay. He is so... He says, I don't want to put my wife through this. You know, if I'm, this is happening to me, I don't want to put my wife through to take care of me like this. He goes, I don't want to put my kids through this either. He says, you know, you ever seen the movie One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, Jack, he says, I picture myself, if I get this disease, I'm going to be in that ward with all those people running around and I'm going to be like that. And I said, okay. I'm not arguing with him. I'm just yeah. listening to him. And he says, you know. He said, uh, I'm, I don't want to put my family through that. I don't want to go through that. So I researched suicide on the internet and he goes, and so I'm going to get my car and I'm going to, he's described exactly what he's going to do. So we know in counseling, when they describe exactly what they're going to do, they're serious. They're not just talking. Ideation. And so he said, you know, I'm going to put my Frank Sester CD in there and I'm just going to go to sleep and that's going to be it. So now I'm panicking. As he's saying this, I'm panicking totally because now I know he's serious. He doesn't have a diagnosis yet. So I'm going crazy. I'm praying to God the whole time he's t talking. I'm telling God, please, I got to stop him. This is can't happen. This doesn't make any sense. Tell me what to say. I kept, in my mind, I'm telling God, mm -hmm. tell me what to say. Tell me what to say. When he's done, I've got to say something to stop him. I don't know what that will be. Mm -hmm. So he finished, and it just, the water, when the Holy Spirit comes and uh, it just flows out of me like water. I can't explain it. It's just, it's not me. I would never have thought to say these things. So I just started telling him. I said, let me tell you something when he was done. I said, God has our pl life plan from start to finish. And he goes, yeah, he's listening to me. He knows everything that's going to happen to us along the way, once we're born till we die. So he knows all the things that happen to us. He knows all the diseases that are going to happen to us, whatever it is. He knows it all. And he's going, he's nodding. He's going, yes. So I said, let's say you have this disease. I said, you know, I'm not saying you do. But I said, look at my mom. My mom didn't want this disease. She got the disease. I'm angry that she has the disease. I'm not happy. This is not making me happy. I said, but because of her disease, I got up out of the pews to do something. Mm -hmm. And I started doing what I was doing. And I've been helping thousands of people that I never would have said hello to before. Mm -hmm. I said, because of her disease. I said, if she would have known I was doing this, I think she would be happy. But I said, that's what happened to me. I said, but look at, say, you. You have your disease. I said, you know, there's many times as Christians 
I said, we are happy to try to bring somebody to the to God. And he goes, mm -hmm. yeah, he's nodding. I said, so if we can direct somebody that comes across our path to find Christ or to, to go to church or whatever, we try to do that. And he mm -hmm. goes, yes, he nods to me. I said, so how do we, you feel good, right? It makes you feel good when you're able to help someone. He goes, yeah. I said, but you know, how many times does God send somebody across our path that we don't even know, that we're not even aware of, that we sit next to on a plane, we sit in a gas station, we're in a market, where we are, and we, we're just talking to them, being who we are, and it affects them. And it changes their, something clicks with them, that God's already working in their brain. And something we say clicks them, and they go off and find God. Mm -hmm. I said, how many people like that that we don't even know about that happens? And he's nodding to me. So I said, so let me tell you something. I said, if you are, and that's what I said, if your wife uh, is going to take care of you, she's going to handle like a Christian woman and do the best she can to take care of you. She's going to do it with a smile on her face. And then she's going to be uh, not going to the bottle. She's not going to the pills. And this is how she's going to do it. I said, and if your kids, the exact same thing is going to happen to your kids. So I said, how many other people are going to watch how they are, what they're doing and how it's affecting them? And they're going to come off and they're going to uh, find God or do something. You don't know how many mm -hmm. people. It's way beyond. This isn't just about us. I said, God's plan with all of us is about much greater. It's about mm -hmm. a bunch of other things, not just us. So I says, we're just used as tools to get certain things done by him to get things done. Mm -hmm. Eternity for us is where we're going. Mm -hmm. I said, but this is uh, earth here is just testing grounds. This is the way I look at it. I said, we're mm -hmm. just doing it. So how many people is that going to happen? He's, this, he's nodding to this whole thing as you're right. So I said to him, I said, who are you to go to God right now and tell him that's it? I'm coming home now. I'm not going to go through this. I'm coming home now. Who are you to cut off God's plan? Mm -hmm. Who are you to tell him I'm not helping these other people you want me to help? Mm-hmm. And he started crying, and he right away grabbed me and gave me a big bear hug. And he said, you're 100% you're right, Vic. I never thought of it that way. He says, thank you. He says, I've never thought of it that way. So he was thrilled mm -hmm. over that. He was thrilled that he felt better about it, and, and he didn't do it. You know, the story that you just told me reminded me um, of the work of a, a Catholic priest by the name of Father Henry Newen. I don't know if you've come uh, across his works. Fantastic author. Um, and, you know, he spent many years um, providing pastoral care, chaplaincy to a facility where I think all the, the patients were brain dead. And, you know, he was doing ministry for these people. And it wasn't his choice. It was his assignment. He struggled with it, you know, for a long time. But eventually, you know, he understood that there's the ministry of the caregiver, but there's also the ministry of the care recipient. Correct. You know, and... You know, that knowledge is so powerful because the guilt that's associated from the care recipient's perspective, it shades so much of a person's experience, you know, in this and in other cases and other diseases. But the idea of the, in Hayyaden, in Armenian, they say, I don't want to be a burden on right, anybody, right, right. right? That's a huge thing. Um, but yet still we are, whether or not we like it. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not our choice. It's yes. not our choice. But there's a ministry in that, in that you provide other people the opportunity to grow and change and to express the gifts that they've been given, as, as you know, as the case of you and your mother. Well, that that story has another twist to it because I got done. We got done with that conversation. He walked away, and I was drained. I was like shaking because I was I didn't expect to have this conversation. So I was like a jello when he left. You know, I said, I got to tell somebody this happened because I couldn't believe what happened. So I went into the offices to, to see a pastor I know. And he's a real nice guy. He's been helping me for years. I walked in. To, I said, Dave, 
this just happened to me outside. He goes, what? So I told him a story in his office. What happened? He listened to me real intently. And when he got, when I, when he got done, when I got done talking, he says, Vic, he tells me, thank you for telling me that story. You helped me a lot. Mm. I went, what? I helped you. What are you talking about? He says, well, tomorrow morning, I'm going to get on a plane with two other pastors. We're going to Africa because we're going to blaze trails for a peace team to come through in Africa. So he says, we're going tomorrow morning. He says, I've been nervous wrecked thinking, who are we going to see? What we're we going to do? What's going to happen? He goes, you just told me that God has it all planned out. I don't have to worry about nothing. <laughs> he says, I'm going to be on that plane smiling tomorrow morning. He says, thank you. He says, you relieve my stress. I don't have to worry about this. And I was laughing because I tell the audiences, God takes one thing that you think you're doing over here and mm -hmm. turns it totally for something else different over here to help somebody in a, a whole different thing. way. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, you can't imagine... That's why I almost said try to figure out what God's doing. You can't figure it out. You just got to go with it. <laughs> you got to roll with it, you know, because you don't know. <laughs> I want to back up for a second because I want to ask you, you know, we talked about the, you know, just a second ago, the ministry of the care recipient. And, you know, you said it's an opportunity for the caregiver to witness, right, mm -hmm. through their good service and um, not just through the choice that they make to take care of somebody, but also by um, embracing it, mm -hmm. right? What about the toll that it takes on people's lives? You know, I mean, there are many people who either through obligation or choice have chosen that path, um, maybe because there was no other choice available to them and other than maybe abandoning their parent, which, you know, we discussed earlier today, does happen in certain cases. Um, but they, they, they choose that path and then they find that they don't have what they need, right? Whatever it is, they don't have the emotional support that they need. They don't have the spiritual resources that they need. Um, they don't have, I don't know, I guess the physical tools or whatever things that they need. You know, they don't live in the right space. Or um, It takes a toll on a person's life, a real toll, right? You know, to the degree that perhaps they're going to consider taking their own life to get out of this scenario. Um, I recognize faith as the antidote to that, but you know, how are we getting people from A to B? You know, how do we go from this, I'm completely overwhelmed with this responsibility that I've taken on to, you know, um, God's going to walk this path with me and, you know, I'm, I'm confident and, and happy that I'm doing the right thing. Well, in this particular case with this disease, to make that bridge and that transition, what you're describing right there, the way I've seen it happening and the way it has happened for a long time is that we get people involved in faith-based support groups where they're surrounded by other people with the exact same situation going on. Some people are a little further along in their faith walk than other people may be, and they hear them talking about their stress, and they hear them talking about how their faith and how that's carrying them through their process, what they're dealing with. And it gives encouragement to them to, to start believing and start uh, praying and start getting in touch with God as they're going through the journey. Um, I can, I've seen this happen so much in a group in front of me all the time. So it's getting them connected with people who are a little further along, maybe in their walk, who could talk about, yeah, I had this horrible thing happen and I felt this way, this and this, but I prayed and prayed and God did this and this happened, this changed. And this, and they're like, whoa, really? Oh, okay. And then they start doing that. So I agree with you. It's impossible. If you don't have God, I, I say this so much and I talk to so many other faith people that say the same thing. There's no way to get through this. You would definitely have a mental breakdown. And I'm not saying as a joke, you would definitely have yeah. a mental breakdown because you the brain can only take so much stress. Right. I mean, and, and that it can't. 
But with God and the peace of God that only he can give on a daily basis, that peace is unbelievable, as you know. Mm -hmm. And that peace is what carries us through everything. And so when we talk to everybody about, oh, I was going crazy. And I always tell the audiences, you know, God made day and night. He made day and night for a reason. If I can get through the day and night until the next morning, I'm okay. I can get, I always tell audiences, I can start again. I can mm -hmm. be okay. It's getting through that day and night. And when I get through that day and, I'm, and I run out of patience and I run out of, you know, gas and I run all this stuff happen and my mom's doing all these crazy things and uh, all these ugly things that we talk about, I said, I go to the Bible. I pull that Bible out. I start reading it. I connect immediately. I don't wait. Mm -hmm. I connect immediately. And he brings peace to me. He brings calm to me to get through the process. And I know I just have to get through that sleep that night. And that morning I can wake up. I'm fresh. Mm -hmm. I can do it again. And I can do it again. And it just repeats itself. And the more I'm dialing into God, the more I'm plugging into him on a daily basis, the more I know I, I'm not doing this by myself. Mm -hmm. I am not by myself. And that's what most caregivers who are having a hard times, they feel they're by themselves. They're the only ones dealing with it. And they aren't. God's right there next to them constantly. And they have to understand that God is right there with them. And God, that peace that he can give, which I've told people about, and they come back, oh, I felt that peace. Yes, that peace is the only thing he can give. And he can give that when you when you sit there and ask him for it and you, you yeah. dial into him. So, I mean, that uh, bond yeah. is the only way they get through it. You know, it's and that peace is what's, what's interesting is and, and people should understand what it is we're talking about we're not talking about a peaceful life no no right we're talking about you know much the opposite in fact in the midst of external chaos of calm, yes you have inner peace mm -hmm. right yes uh the the peace that christ is giving us is not a smooth life <laughs> yes <laughs> it isn't typically it's no. not it's not typically hanging out on mm -hmm. the lounge chair drinking a corona <laughs> on the beach that's not the peace was, he's talking yes. about but he's talking about the amazing peace that we can have yes. in our hearts when everything around us right. is insane, right? right. That's, oh. In this scenario, it's an irreplaceable um It's better than any tool. drug, right. anything you could think of. I can't, ex you know what, uh, you know what I'm saying is that when you get that peace, I can't explain how you can go from uh, against, the, hit the wall at 100 degrees to zero in seconds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That peace is amazing. When it hits you, you are just, like jello at least that's mm -hmm. how i feel mm -hmm. i am just like oh my god it's just calm i feel light that's yes you know, oh feel, yeah the warmth and, and everything oh yes so you, and, know, you know and when and, and let me give you an example a professional uh person is in this field with alzheimer's and she's written many books i won't bring up her name because a lot of people know her but anyways i was at her seminar one time she was giving a talk about caregiving and she was giving all these steps and everything about caregiving and I raised my hand and asked her, I said, so, and she just said that her mother had just gotten a disease. And so her and her sister were caring for her mother now. So I, I said to her, I said, so when you go and see your mom and she's got these, displaying these issues, do you use these steps that you're telling all of us use these steps? Do you use just all the steps you're dealing with her? And she, I never forget, she turned on and smiled at me and she said, well, let me tell you, when I go to my mom's apartment, she says that she's 85 years old, and I knock on the door, and she opens it up and looks at me, starts cussing me out. She says, I start crying immediately. I'm a lump of jello. She says, I'm, it's my mother. It's my mother. She says, it doesn't matter what I know or don't know. I'm still her child. And mm -hmm. when that happens, I'm a wreck. Mm -hmm. And she says, and that's normal. And I said to her, that's what I'm saying to you. The hard part for teaching people or talking to people about Alzheimer's is when the professionals come out and say all these things, 
they forget to tell them, you're human. You're a human being. You're an emotional being. So when this person that you love dearly, it's not just a patient or, uh, you know, you're getting paid as a caregiver. This is someone you love. And they come out there and tell you you're the worst thing in the world and tell you all the stuff that they tell you. I said, you're going to fall apart. That's normal. And the thing is that people have to know is once you fall apart, catch yourself. In other words, don't fall and don't get not get up again. Mm-hmm. No, don't let the devil get to you and keep you down with all, mm-hmm. how horrible this is and how horrible that, why you, no, you go down and you realize, okay, this is the disease. This, you do all the things we do to each, ourselves and say that this is what's going on and then you go forward and you mm-hmm. do what you need to do, you do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. But that initial reaction is okay. It's okay to fall to apart. Be human. It's human. Right. And don't, but you, people aren't telling people to do that. They're not mm-hmm. allowing them to be human. And if they are human, then they're making them feel like they're terrible people for being human, you know what I mean? And yeah. then the, and then that's where the devil comes in and gets them, I feel, to make them beat themselves up. That Absolutely. I'm such a terrible person because I said this to my mother or, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it is. We always laugh. They never forget any, they'll never, won't forget what you, I mean, they won't remember what you said anyways. So you're the one beating yourself up for weeks afterwards. Absolutely. You know? And so going into this with the realistic expectation that being a human being will mean that you won't be perfect throughout right. this process. Right. And that if you fall and short, okay. don't give space, you know, for temptation to give way to, I'm not good enough. I can't do right. this. I'm, you know, I'm only going to hurt them. Right. I'm not going to help them. Um, so I wanted to back up again for a second because you talked about the value of being in a supportive group of people that can share their their experiences. You know, and, and again, one of like the really insidious aspects of this is the social stigma that's associated with it. Right. So even though you need to be around other people who can share their success stories and commiserate in failures, and all, you are not likely to go out and to seek out that group of people or find them because you, you have trouble admitting to the world that this is something that you're struggling with openly. How, how do people overcome the stigma? The stress and is that And do you think that uh, you know, coming from an Armenian background and your experience, is there a cultural bias as well? Oh, big time, yes. Yeah. There is a cultural bias. I haven't, um, I know it's there and I know it exists. I haven't done enough in, with the Armenian uh, culture, I want to say, other than what we're going to be doing recently coming up. But to really understand how that's going to work, I can tell you and outside the culture how that works is... Um, People will come to a support group and they'll walk in, they hear all these crazy things, whatever they do, and they'll go, oh my God, that's not me. I, I don't need this. You know, this is way beyond me. And they leave. A year later, they come back and they go, I'm back. Mm. And now I need it. And they come in. And so what I'm trying to say is that people in the beginning will go into denial as much as possible, as much as they can. But once the stress levels get too far, they give in. It's like crying uncle. They know they need it. And they mm-hmm. come back, and mm-hmm. they have to do it. Assuming they know that it's available. At well, exactly, all. it yeah. has to be available. But yeah. you know, and I think that's w- that way with any culture anywhere. You know, it's mm-hmm. human nature. Right. So, if that's why we want to try to create so many faith-based support groups everywhere, that's what my goal is is for that reason. So those things exist for those people to be able to come into there. Like like you said, once they're aware it exists somewhere, they tap into it and they go into it. When it's not around for them, it's really tough. That's why I wish there was a lot more people doing what I'm doing. 
out there. In Having the these seminars where we uh, broach the subject and talk about it, like today we, we did a little bit of it, mm -hmm. but having those, because you saw just the questions we had, which that's like nothing compared to what I usually say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They would be a lot more questions mm -hmm. if they would, I find I brought a lot of the stuff out. Mm -hmm. But having those uh, open dialogues to bring that out and then saying also, we're going to have a group meeting here, you know, mm -hmm. after we have that talk. Because mm -hmm. I bet you a lot of those people in this room would come to the meeting mm -hmm. that I'm talking about or mm -hmm. tell their friends. Sure. A lot of it's word of mouth. It'll yeah. tell people and they'll mm -hmm. show up and come. Mm -hmm. But like what you're saying is without that, um, church, the church saying, we're talking about this, this is okay, and let's do it. I, I give you an example. Um, the um, San Francisco Diocese recently, they asked me to do a training for their uh, deacons. And they said, you know, Vic, our clergy, our deacons need to know about this. We don't know anything about this. And we need to know about this because our people come to us when they need help. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. I, I've always wanted to teach <laughs> the the pastors and everybody, but all the big mega churches, every place I go to, they always say they're too busy to have time to listen to this. But so I did this training five months ago, four months ago in San Francisco with the deacons. And they were just, I had a room full of deacons and they were loved it. And mm -hmm. they said, you know, we don't get this information. And that's what's hard when the, from the clergy standpoint of view is that they don't have the knowledge. And so, like one of the clergy was telling me, Vic, you know, I was helping this person with vascular dementia. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know how to help the family. I tried. He was, it was horrible for me to learn on the job to try to figure out how to help them. He said, that's why they need to know that they need to know the tools. Mm -hmm. They need to know. So and my point was to them is that when you're the church, you're the clergy, and when somebody's coming to you and they're uh, coming from the from the congregation, and they're saying to you, oh, my husband's doing this, and my father's, or my husband, whatever it is, and they're describing this wacky thing, whatever it may be, I, I always tell them, it's your responsibility first to, to listen intently, not to react, no matter how, what they're telling you how bizarre it is, because there's bizarre behaviors associated with this, and to come back with them with some resources, with some ideas about Get get some uh, eyes to look at this. You know, have someone. So did you have you tried getting testing here? Have you tried taking them to a neurologist? You know, what's a neurologist? A neurologist is this. You know, the basics. You know, tell them this so they have some direction to go to to see what is going on with their loved one, because the behaviors that's going to motivate them to come up and talk to you is going to be pretty bizarre. They're not going to just come to you unless it is something they don't know what to do. Sure. Yeah. And so there's some really crazy things that can happen. So clergy and the church can form like a very effective front line to be able to identify the symptoms early yes. on and steer them in the right direction. Steer them to resources so that, that are local in the area, right. And the earlier that somebody uh, gets helped for dementia and Alzheimer's, oh, better the better it is. At this point, Vic and I have a candid discussion about the struggles that families are faced with when considering placing a loved one with dementia at a memory care facility. As we stated earlier in this podcast, Vic works with Silverado, which is a well-known memory care provider. Of course, he responds to this question as a representative of that company, but I still think his input would be valuable to anyone faced with this question. However, this shouldn't be construed as an endorsement by our parish of Silverado or any other memory care facility. Oh my God, I right. can't tell you. I did that with my mom. When I placed her at Silverado and I had to move her from my home, I said, I said what everybody else always says. After about three weeks there, I said, I should have done this so much sooner. I felt guilty because I felt like I should have done this so much sooner. She would have had a much better quality if she was earlier in a disease, mm -hmm. enjoying this stuff. 
and I just held on too long. And the same thing, they hear it all the time. Everybody hears it all the time because in the earlier stages, that they're able to really appreciate all the activities and all the things they do and they're happier and it's nice. I mean, when you take them to a Silverado and they get to do all those activities, things we're talking about, like my mom, that was her house. She's not, it's not a prison. She's not locked in there. I go pick her up, I go to lunch, take her to dinner, go do this. My sister took her to get her nails done, bring her back. I mean, they go in and out, but that environment makes them happy. It's, it's the, what's created for them. Yeah, that was actually the, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about was there's a, there's a huge struggle here with regard to memory care services and facilities. Again, and I think a lot of this has to do with guilt and with the, the role of family members, whether it be a spouse or a child, you know, and taking on the responsibility for a loved one who has dementia Alzheimer's. You know, so first there's this, um, this feeling of if I were to, quote unquote, send away, and my loved one to one of these facilities, I would be abandoning my responsibility. I would be, right. you know, forfeiting uh, my role as a as a spouse, as a child, etc., in terms of taking care of them. And what does a person need to do to process that? Right? I mean, I'm sure, like, the minute somebody starts exhibiting dementia symptoms, is not the right time to say it's time for you to go no, somewhere no. else. Right? <laughs> no, but it's there a certainly process. is a moment depending on everybody's circumstances, when that's the right decision right. to make, right? right. I mean, if, you're, if, type you're, for everything. if right. you're a spouse and you're both elderly and, you know, you know that you can no longer uh, aptly take care of a person, that's a factor. And if you're a young person uh, dealing with a parent or a spouse even that has Alzheimer's dementia, like, there are a lot of factors that are going into making that decision. So, like, how can a person evaluate when that's the right um, moment in their lives and do so without the guilt of feeling like they've abandoned a loved one. And then the other follow-up question I have is, and I'm knowing that you represent Silverado, which is a company that provides these services, what are the standards that a person needs to look for in making that decision? Because not every facility or service is created equal. Well, the first part of your question, um, I have to say, we, none of us are going to uh, avoid uh, avoid that I know of anyways. Guilt. Guilt's always going to be there. Guilt's always going to be in our mind. We're human beings. We're going to feel that guilt. I don't know what it is. I programmed it into our brains. We have this guilty thing. So we'll always feel guilty. It's how do we deal with that guilt? How do we feel less guilty about it when we go to make those changes? So I think it's false expectations to feel like, I'll do this and I'll be absolved of all guilt and I'll feel fine. You know, no. And I've never known anybody to do that yet. So my point is that when you go into the uh, area where you're wondering, because I get the question many times, when do I know it's time to move someone from home to wherever? And I say to them, the moment you start thinking about moving them, there's something going on. Like with me, when I was struggling with moving my mom, it was these safety issues. And typically, most of the time, it's a safety issue at home. There's something going on that you're worried about. Either they're wandering, they're going off, or there's something dangerous that's happened at home. There's something going on that's causing you to say, how long, much longer could I do this? Or whatever's going on. Or, uh, you know, is it safe for them? So that prompts you to start thinking that direction. And then if you start thinking that direction, then you probably should make a change and do that to in order to keep them in, either in a safe environment or in a better environment and for you to be but you need to be. The other thing that people don't understand, and I didn't understand until I moved my mom, and they kept telling me this before I moved my mom. I, the, <laughs> as being Armenian, I didn't want to move her. I want, it's my job, I'm taking care of her. Blah, blah, blah. No one told me that, I just started doing that. 
And then, so I had the professionals telling me for a long time, Vic, it's time, Vic, it's time. Her own doctor told me for two years, I had caregivers 24 seven in my house. And he said, you're spending way more, more money than you would just having her in the, what are you doing? You know, she doesn't know. I mean, her own doctor kept telling me to do it and I wouldn't do it. I just felt this obligation. And so the thing was that when you um, are able to look at the situation as objectively as you can and understand that when they are in an environment like a, a, a proper environment, a good environment, when they're in an environment with other people that have the same disease situation, they are happier. They're much happier when they're in that population, all the same. When they are in an environment with just us, and we aren't trained, most of us aren't trained real well to take care of them, then they are struggling to maintain that uh, sense of normalcy. And that's a struggle, that's hard. And that makes them more upset. But like my mom, as soon as I moved her to the community, when she was amongst all these people who were the same, 50 people, 60 people, she was like, oh, I could be who I want to be. Mm -hmm. Everybody's the same. Mm -hmm. We're all the same. And it was such a relief for her. And in fact, one time when I told her in the dining room, I said, mom, these people are really nice here, aren't they? She goes, yeah, too bad they're all like this. <laughs> Not her, but everybody else. Sure. Yeah, so we're laughing and I, I was laughing. And so, but I'm just saying is, but it's fine. It worked fine. And so then my other thing was that when you're in the journey, as you just said, you don't just bam, move them to a place once you find out that's what they's going on with them. Or, mm. You, this is a process. We all want to keep them home as long as possible. We want them to enjoy the family. So you start off doing that. You start using daycares, you know, a little day here, two here. You start bringing caregivers in one day, two days here to supplement, to give you some relief. So you can keep them at home, keep them along. So it's a journey. And as that increases, increases, and as a disease gets worse and worse, you see there's a time period where, yes, this is appropriate to make the move. It's the time to make the move. Mm -hmm. And so as a caregiver, as a family member, at least you look at it and say, I did everything I could to keep them comfortable where I would like them to be. But now for their benefit, not mine, is to go to this next level and do what this change I need to do. And you do that. The people who haven't done that, they, they do it because they have a sense of obligation. They Maybe their loved ones have said, don't you ever put me in a home. Don't you ever do that. You know, that's old fashioned way of thinking. Don't you ever do that. And they're that person's suffering in the house. And I, ugly stories just because the person that's in control doesn't want to pull the trigger, doesn't mm -hmm. want to do the thing. Mm -hmm. So it's making that value judgment and saying this is appropriate now. And Not then the other thing to do. And yeah, and the other thing that people are very concerned about is what people will think of them for doing that. So there's a big thing about what their neighbors will think, what their family will think when they make that decision to make that change. So I always response to that is this, look, you, if you're the caregiver and you're doing this, you are hopefully educating yourself, self-educating yourself and getting up on what's going on, the latest things, whatever's going on. So you have a lot of knowledge, hopefully about the disease and you're learning because you're with your loved one working with them. These other people we're talking about don't have any of that. And they're just watching and they're saying, oh, you're a terrible son, you're a terrible daughter, you're a terrible husband, you're a wife because you did this. So you, I said, tell those people, look, if your loved one has cancer and you put them in the hospital for treatment, for um, uh, chemotherapy, or whatever treatment you do, are they telling you you're a horrible person because you put them in the hospital to get treatment? Is that what they're telling you? Is that kind of rotten person are you are? No. I said, but so what's the difference if you put them in a community, that's the medicine for them. They, they, there is no medicine, as I was saying in my stuff, since 2004 was, was Aricept. 
But that treatment, that engagement, that massive amount of staff and everything they have, that's the medicine. They're getting medicine every day they're there. That's just making them happy. It's nothing being injected into them. So that's what you're doing. You, kn you know you're doing that. They don't know you're doing that. So don't feel bad when somebody's telling you how rotten you are for doing that and spending $15,000 a month for doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, come on, you're not a rotten person. Mm -hmm. And But the stigma that goes in there where you're saying, what are people gonna say? Are they saying you're trying to spend their money? How many times I hear that? Oh, you're going after their money. You wanna take their money. That's why you put them away. Mm. And that's all, yes, there are bad people out there. There are people who do bad things. I'm not saying that. But the majority of people want to do the right thing. Yeah. And the majority of people are trying to do the best for their family. Right. So don't put that label on them that they're trying to steal or do all these things that they people say. I think that the stigma probably comes from, as you say, you know, a general sense of um, uh, what we perceive to be duty within the family which certainly comes from a good place, right? I mean, it's right and, and good that we should have a responsibility to one another. Oh, and, for sure. And I, uh, anybody that's struggling with this, uh, I know that already you feel a sense of responsibility towards your loved one. I think a lot of it also has to do with um, kind of a, a lack of confidence in some of these facilities, right? I mean, that, that maybe they're not the best place for them to be because they're not clean enough or they don't pay enough attention or they don't know them well enough or they can't make them be so and i think that's a and a lot of that is historical because you know what elder care used to be like institutionalized the elder care used to be like uh in decades previous and centuries previous was horrific uh that's that's fine and in many places it still is so there's a lack of confidence in the services being provided in certain cases so Coming back to the second part of my question, what should somebody be looking for if they want to do the best they can within their means to be able to provide for a good experience for their loved one? Well, first of all, they should, I always believe, do your research, just like anything you do. Research what you're doing before jumping into anything. So do your research, look online. There's a lot of information on the internet as far as care goes and lists of care, what to look at. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association in every area has a listing of places they think are good, that they've, they've already vetted, and said that these are decent places to go look at. But, uh, I, and I'm not saying this because I work for Silverado, but Silverado is, is, is the top company for this care in, in the United States. They have a contract with the NFL. They do, all the NFL players go to them mm -hmm. uh, all over. And so they just, they're the leading cutting edge of this disease. So my point is, why I say that is, and people, a lot of people say, well, I can't afford that or whatever. What I tell them is, look, you don't know what you're looking for. It just brings it up unless you see what it's supposed to be like. So rather than trying to figure on your own, how is this supposed to be? Go take a tour. They're free. They don't cost nothing. Go to a local Silverado. Take a tour. Go through it. Let them show you what they're doing and why they're doing it. And you learn what you're looking for. Then take that information when you go look at other places, when they start telling you things, you know, well, does that make sense? Or does that not make sense of what you've seen? With me, this is, it happened exactly to me years ago, before I was involved with Silverado, I went and looked at uh, with a placement place because I was anticipating placing mom. So I had, I told the hospital, local hospital, I said, who do I, uh, I don't know how to do this, or how do I do this? And they said, oh, we have this guy, he's really good, he's been around for years, we use him, he'll take you around and show you all the good places to go to. I said, okay, so it's like a realtor. He came by, picked me up, I said, I only want to see Alzheimer places, that's what I told him. So he took me to four, what we call boarding cares, small homes, group homes, that are uh, less expensive, but they're in the areas. 
So he took me to four and showed me each one like a realtor. So I went in there and I'm looking at this and, he, and I'm looking and here's these people, there's really five or six people and they're in wheelchairs. All the wheelchairs are blankets around them and they have music on a, like a TV playing like music and they're like out of it and they're sitting there and he's telling me, govalling to me saying, look how good this is. They're clean. They're, they're, look how, they're happy. They're just sitting there. And I'm looking at this going, this doesn't make sense. This is weird. This doesn't seem right. Every place was like that he took me to. So I didn't know a lot at the time. And I kept thinking, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I know now that that's what they call warehousing. There's a term for that. It's called warehousing. You just push your body in there and say, here, you're keeping them clean. And that's what you're doing, but it's mm -hmm. not helping them. Mm -hmm. So he was showing me stuff because he gets a commission for all those places where he places them at. You know, it's like the real estate. He gets oh. a commission for everybody. So he's taking me to the places that wherever yeah. he gets paid. Mm -hmm. And I'm the guy who doesn't know anything. So I tell the audiences now is we know a lot more than we think we know. So when you see something, use your gut instinct. When you're looking at something that doesn't make sense to you, there's a pretty good chance it doesn't make sense. Like when I saw that stuff, I said, that's weird. That doesn't make sense to me. And I was right, but mm -hmm. the, the professional was telling me, oh, that's the place to be. Mm -hmm. So now what I tell people is you're looking for engagement. You're looking for places that have activities. They, if they ever smaller group homes, they're bringing activities in. They're having people come in to do painting, to do different things. And they're, they're keeping people going. Mm -hmm. You look like, you always ask, what kind of engagement do you have? What kind of access do you have for medical care? You know, what do you have in case something goes wrong in the middle of the night? with my loved one, what do you do? You ask all these questions when you're in there and see what their responses are. So a lot of places say they have 24-hour nursing on staff or on, on they have 24-hour nursing. It says they're bold line, 24-hour nursing. Then you ask them, is there a nurse 24-7 in this building or are you calling somebody at home mm -hmm. to come? And then they say they're calling somebody to come at home. So Rado has a 24-7 nurse, has a 24-7 uh, social worker. They're all there 24-7 for any need yeah. you have. So these are, the, that's why I said, Go to there, take the tours, write the notes, make you do your homework, make the notes, and then start looking at other places you want to compare. Because I always say, you know what's best for you. And so if it works for you and financially it works for you, then great. You know what you're doing. But don't discount your, your inner feeling. When you're praying about it, that's what I always do, pray about it, say, which is the right place? Show me the right place. And you got a good feeling this is, feels good. That's probably where you should go. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Well, thank you so much, Vic. I just want to say that it's been really enlightening talking to you. And this ministry that you're doing is obviously fulfilling a, a real need in God's people. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people out there looking for answers in, in many different respects around this question of dementia. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to spend with us, to talk to my community and to share your experiences. Oh, you're it's welcome. It's been wonderful. No problem. Yeah. God bless you. No, God bless you. Although our memory can be robbed from us by dementia, I find it helpful to abide in the truth that when we can no longer remember for ourselves, God is remembering for us. Part of salvation is being redeemed. And that redemption includes the restoration of the fullness of our experiences. Therefore, for those who aim for the kingdom of God, nothing will ever truly be forgotten. Thank you again to Vic Mazmanyan for presenting at our parish and sitting down to speak with me. 
A special thanks to Dr. Jane Mahakyan, co-founder of Alzheimer's Care Armenia, for responding to my invitation to speak at St. John, although last-minute travel disruptions prevented her from being present that day. However, it was thanks to her coordination that Vic was able to be present. Links to Vic's Mind, Heart, and Soul ministry will be found in the show notes, as well as to Alzheimer's Care Armenia. Lastly, I want to encourage the faithful of St. John and all Armenian churches to be bold in relying on the support that their parishes provide during times of difficulty such as this. The Armenian Church is here to provide pastoral care to you in moments when you feel that you are being overwhelmed. If you are in the San Francisco Bay Area and you would like to participate in a dementia caregivers support group, please reach out to me so that we can coordinate something together. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and my email address is pastor at stjohnarmenianchurch.com. For more information about our parish's programs and activities, please visit us on social media or our website at stjohnarmenianchurch.com. Astvad Zorchnet says, God bless you.